You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, on this episode, John Relier goes inside the huddle. The Canadian-American base spoke to us from Rome, where he just completed a run in the title role of Boito's Mephistophele. Little did he know that he would be bargaining with his own soul when he agreed (laughs) to be interviewed by... Then, a field (laughs) report from PJ on the Mets' Tannhäuser and the Callus 100 countdown continues... Plus, tributes are flooding in for the late Marlena Malas. We'll share some with you in the two-minute drill. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, by the way, on Spotify. You click follow. On Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you're going to get that OBS beer coaster, the OBS the Pelpen, and the all-new number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. Get that holiday shopping done early. Get your voice heard and then pass on our merch to the person you love in your life. Matt Cummings, <laughs> you you were are a, a tenor, but now you sound like a bass. Yeah, um, so the thing about that is, don't get RSV, kids, because <laughs> even if it's not going to kill you, it, it ain't fun. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I haven't had a voice for like two weeks now, and I'm no. desperately hoping it comes back in time for Christmas gigs, so everyone out there, pray for me. <laughs> Sending good vibes and white light your way. Weston, do you need any help or assistance? Or I've been trying to pitch up my voice to be Matt's backup. Oh, there we uh, go. So um, it's not working so far. You know, I, I just have that sultry, you know, sort of a, a romance novel, audiobook reader kind of voice. And that's that's what people know me for. Well, if you two swap, then Ashley, just don't change a thing. <laughs> No problem. That is something I can <laughs> I can do. Um, what is changing is the standings in the National Football League, because boy, mm-hmm. howdy, there were some crazy games this weekend. Um, the Bears won for the second game in a row, the which Bears. is something they haven't done in almost two years. Shocking. I'm as surprised as you are. It was very surprising. So that team won, and a lot of good teams did not. Very interesting season. And uh, I was going to say and, bizarre season, but yes, <laughs> that's another and, and way to put it. I think you mean bears are. Oh, there it is. <laughs> there yes. it is, yeah. And I was desperately hoping to get this guy on the show, but I will not divulge his name yet. Uh, but he posted on social media about the different probabilities and chances of, of different teams making the playoffs. And so, you know, people like the, you know, certain teams are in the 99% and the Bears are on the board at 1%. So I just wrote back, <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Well, raise your hand if you're having college football withdrawal. I certainly am in the Army-Navy game. That doesn't cut it. So. No. New Year's cannot come soon enough. I'm ready for bowl games, and I am ready to take on Alabama on the collision course that is this <laughs> R.I.P. Show. George. Oh, dude, dude. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. 
Let's go inside the huddle. Last Saturday, John Relier was a guest on Oliver's other show and was tricked or maybe seduced into going inside the <laughs> huddle for OBS. You can hear his quote unquote professional interview on December until December 22nd at WFMT.com. But you gotta hand it to Oliver for flirting so hard with a married man with two kids. And as you will soon hear, Oliver says he's always been a fan of the Canadian American base whose career spans over 30 years. But here at OBS, we are all assuming Oliver's fandom was reignited when Relier appeared bare-chested as the ghost in last season's Met HD broadcast of Brett Dean's Hamlet. Before we dive into the conversation, however, here is a little bit of John Relier singing the aria of the gravedigger from Hamlet. Well, I would count King Philip and Don Carlos as one of another one of your great roles, but how do you decide if you're going to sing the Inquisitor or if you're going to sing Philip when you uh, are getting these contracts? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like whoever has the darker a, voice <laughs> gets to be the inquisitor. Well, that's usually me, but, uh, um, you know, there's, this is an interesting thing about basses. Um, I, a lot of, a lot of my reference to when I listen to a role and I get ideas about it and I go back, back, back and listen to early recordings you know, more often than not, the further back you are, you go, um, the darker the trend seems to be in terms of vocal color for the basses. And I'm, uh, I'm not sure why that is, but uh, getting back to my teacher, Jerome Hines, you know, the legendary, the legendary bass, uh, he, he was a very, very dark voice, but he also talked about you know the uh the change i guess you could say in um the 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 vocal color trend i guess you could say but i think it was probably more relative to training style um but he said that um what did he say the baritones of yesterday sounded like the basses of today so like if you could go back and and hear for let's take George London for example, if you were to really listen to him nowadays, you would almost say that's a a true bass until you heard him go up into his very top notes, and you'd be like, oh, okay, he's a bass baritone, but by a different definition. So you know, I, I definitely now in this particular portion of my life, I have a much darker color, um, and you know, if we're if we're talking you know, in traditional terms, yes, I, I would probably sing the Inquisitor quite often because you could end up, you know, with a, a Philip that has a Filippo that has a more a, a, a brighter colors, uh, more lyric leaning kind of voice. Um, and you could say that the Inquisitor needs to completely overpower um, King Philip in, in, in their confrontation scene, the famous scene. Um, but, um, and I, and I did sing, uh, the Inquisitor along 
with uh, Gunther Groisbuck's um, Filippo at the Met, and we're both pretty, we're both pretty dark in terms of our vocal colors, and that in itself can be quite, quite exciting too, because you you have what feels like two very equal forces, um, you know, confronting each other and resisting. Um, so I think the rules are pretty flexible, um, and of course. From a perspective of what I would prefer to sing most of the time, it would be Philip. Um, but but the the feeling of singing the Inquisitor is also very it's a it's a great feeling of power that you can really relish on stage. So I've very much enjoyed that. Um, uh, but sort of these days now, I'm moving really moving into singing uh, King Philip. So I just did I did that at Covent Garden, and I did it at the Bayerisch Staatsoper, like within a couple of weeks of each other, incidentally, this last summer. Um, but it's it's cool when you see that that scene from both sides, because then you can you can play off of each other even better. It's sort of like when people trade the roles of Don Giovanni and Leporello. It's mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great way to understand how how the uh, energy passes between the characters. <laughs> Gunter Groisbach is a very good-looking guy, and you're also a very good-looking guy. Like, I think your images are your headshots, whatever, like very striking. You know, you got the black hair and like the steel blue eyes and whatnot. And so to put you in that makeup for Inquisitor is such a waste. (laughs) (laughs) I was the ugliest I think I've been on stage maybe in my whole career, Uh, you know, just... uh... It was a cool makeup job, though, because they were using um, they were using you know film uh, film quality mm. um, bald caps and things that really you couldn't see it a lot. Of, it look, really looked like real my real scalp and all this, but it was yeah, yeah pretty pretty alarming uh, uh, to look in a mirror even. Um, but. Uh, it's fun because then you look in the mirror and you see that guy and you start to become him. You know, it's it's very easy segue from there. Yeah. Well, but with Philip specifically, I'm thinking about casting directors and how they have to deal with the problem of John Rallier being too good looking. Uh, and you have to find a, a, a Carlo who is, you know, looks younger than you and who could potentially be your son. <laughs> <laughs> and be more desirable than you for Elizabeth. You know? <laughs> well, I, I had some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty handsome guys um, singing in in the last two uh, Don Carlo productions. I was Filippo, and we had um, Brian Jade mm-hmm. at Covent Garden, and then we had 
my good old friend, Charles Castro. Okay. I'll give it to Charlie. Yeah. For sure, Charlie so. is better looking than you, but I don't know about Brian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk to me about eating mushrooms and dying as Boris in um, in Lady Macbeth? I know this is going to make my co-host Weston very happy. He loves that opera. And yeah. uh, we're going to put this video of oh, you cool. uh, either on our webpage or some somewhere. Uh, it's yeah. it's so good. And like with the, you know, the la I don't know if you watched The Last of Us, there's a show about yes, cordyceps. I I, yeah, that's right. very timely. Oh, good Lord. A, a good thing I didn't turn into one of those things. Yeah, it's an amazing series. I got to say, I loved it. But I'm also like a, a, a fan of Walking Dead series. I watched that whole thing. So mm -hmm. I'm into the cheap zombie stuff too. So, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, uh, uh, oh God, talk about a character you, you hate, but mm -hmm. love to perform. Yeah, he's Boris Timofeyevich is just a scumbag to the highest order. Um, but uh, I loved playing him, you know, because uh, he's just, um, again, like I like to go into these characters that have these deeply flawed interiors, you know, and uh, he's about as dysfunctional as it gets. You know, he's he's trying to get with his his daughter in law while his son is away, you know, and uh he's he's I guess we can safely say he's a pretty major drunk. Um and yeah, and he has he has no shame. Um so I just kinda went all in on that, uh, you know, because you know the interestingly with that piece is there are no good guys <laughs> I mean, everybody yep. is is majorly flawed um but he i would say without a doubt is is kind of the darkest most criminal character even though he's not the one who commits murder uh i think uh you know you could say he's probably a rapist and all that so that's fair to say uh, he's just as bad as everybody else and i guess you kind of have to really make him the ultimate you know the ultimate scumbag i keep saying that but that's just the <laughs> right from the minute i read through the libretto and heard the recording oh my god this guy is just awful so uh it was a bit um yeah it was a it felt a bit like an exorcism playing him i don't know it was really just um wow uh but the, but also just that score is just brilliant it's so genius um, you know, because he goes between serious and satire in such a seamless way that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just truly, truly brilliant. Oh, my God. 
A couple weeks ago, we had Francesca Zambello on, and uh, we were discussing the the birth of the Barahunk. And, um, you know, I feel like this revival or this American debut of Brett Dean's Hamlet was um, sort of made for me uh, because I ended up really liking the overall show. I don't know if I want to listen to it, like as an opera, but like Mm -hmm. as a show, it was super engaging. And really Alan is. Clayton, I mean, the whole cast was at Brenda Ray. Oh, Alan, Alan is a yeah. force of nature. He is. And like the, he's a phenomenon. The twin countertenors. Like there were so many, oh, yeah. there were so many great touches that just kept mm-hmm. me engaged the whole time. And I do want to ask you about Alan, but I also want to ask you about, uh, did you feel like you needed to do extra push ups or like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be on a diet while I'm in this show? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to bulk up. I think that's sort of what I did. Um, did they paint yeah. abs on you or are those your abs? Oh, I must have been flexing there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they miraculously appeared. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that was, I think, maybe the first or second time I'd actually just been bare mm-hmm. upper body for anything. Somehow I, I, uh, I avoided that for most of my career. But um, yeah, so I... I and, saw the, the the video of it and and now it's an HD. It. Yeah, <laughs> making gay boys all over the world so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely me uh, trying to to uh, impress through middle age. So. Yeah. There we are. But talk to me about Alan because I I'm just blown away by this guy. I mean, he's like mm-hmm. an athlete and he's a lunatic. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he um he's a perfect example of the ultimate singer actor, I would say. You know, you don't the two are not separate, you know, with him. He is he's completely unified as a singer and an actor. Um and you know, it's it's a um, a, a, almost a, it's, it's a, he's almost a chameleon in terms of even his tenor Fach, because you have moments where he sings and it sounds like, you know, Peter Pears or somebody like that. And then he can really open it up and, and you're almost in Vickers territory. So, mm. um, you know, that, that was, uh, there's so many layers that he can bring out in his, in terms of his acting right into his voice and vice versa. Um, you know, and I saw that again when I saw his Peter Grimes. I couldn't wait to see that because I knew right away, you know, he'd be the ultimate yeah, Peter perfect Grimes, for it, yeah, which he really is. Um, yeah, so he, he's if I was talking to any young singer and I wanted to just sum up what a you know, uh, you know, a, an ultimate artist is in this in this art form, I would say he'd be. He'd be up at the top of the list and said, tell him, just go watch him perform. Cause you, you know, it's, 
it makes you really respect, you know, true stagecraft as well as great singing at the same time. Well, I'm going to spring a surprise question on you, and I'm going to say it slowly so you have time to think about it. But here at Opera Box Score, we are celebrating the centennial of Maria Callas uh, by counting down the 100 greatest, and you could fill in the blank. It could be a picture. It could be a video. It could be a recording. It could be a career event. It could be a quote. It could be an anecdote. It could be anything that you could think of when you think of Maria Callas. What is one or two of the things that you think about that made her not even great, but made her who she is from Maria Callas's career? Uh, well, the, the, the biggest impression, the, the first one really, uh, was that Paris concert. Um, gosh, 58, the one where she's wearing a super beautiful gown and like lots of yeah, lines. And yeah. She, and yeah. she even sings Una Voce Poco Fa. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, that one blew me away. I didn't, you know, this, this was one of the first things my dad showed me. Uh, of, uh, you know, his sort of his favorite things with, with opera singers. And, uh, that I thought was amazing. And I remember at one point, um, she, she's trying to continue with the next phrase and you hear a guy out in, in the audience trying to scream a bravo and mm. it sounds like someone's tackling him <laughs> so she can go on, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's like that too. It's like what I was, you know, thinking of when people are so naturally unified as you know, singers and actors. And she, in that video, she really had it there. Well, the audience is going to be so tired of me telling this story, but when she sings Costa Diva, um, the chorus comes in all wrong, all sorts of wrong. And she's just like, she gets this look on her face like, okay, how are we going to fix this? And she gives a downbeat for when they're tutti. And it gets everybody on track, and it's like she doesn't miss a step, and it's so incredible. <laughs> wow! Yeah, seriously intelligent singer too. Well, Just... John Relier, I have been a fan of yours for so many years now, and um, I'm so glad I finally got a chance to meet you. And I'm looking forward to your performance at the Messiah. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. You heard two clips in that interview, the Grand Inquisitor scene with Gunter Groisbock as King Philip from last year's Don Carlo with the Met, conducted by Carlo Rizzi. And then you heard the Poison Mushroom scene from Lady Macbeth of Betsensk with soprano Svetlana Sotstalalieva, also from last season at the Met, conducted by friend of the show Carrie Lynn Wilson. As promised, you can watch The Death of Boris Timofeyevich on the webpage for this episode at operaboxscore.com. Thanks again to John Relier, and thanks to the PR team at Chicago Symphony Orchestra, where John will be the bass soloist and handles Messiah later this month. And you don't want to miss a moment of the action on the OBS. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Well, the Bears have two wins in a row. Get this. The OBS fantasy football team in the Opera Philadelphia League has also had only a single example the entire season when we won <laughs> back-to-back games. I personally blame Yahoo.com's auto-draft function and <laughs> slash or Tobias Wright. Are, have you ever seen them in the same room together? I think they might be one and the same, George. They most certainly have never been in the same room together because I'm the guy <laughs> who's been running the auto-draft. Never again. Not going to do that ever again. His middle name is Parks, for those of you who are following along and are desperate to know the full name from last week's episode. I was. 
Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. PJ checks in from the Met and the recent production of Tannhäuser. Hello, Opera Box Score. Hello, listener mailbag. It's PJ and Donald. Hello there. Now, I've been misinformed, Donald. All these years, I thought it was Tannhäuser. So I've been saying Tannhäuser my entire life. Umlaut. You and your umlauts. You know, I was corrected walking into the opera house by the guy directing traffic, pointing out that I was saying it the wrong way. That's true. Did not start out well. And, And the other thing is... We're not done. This is the intermission between the first and second. Oh, yeah, we There's got, more? We got, we got two hours of music left. Dear God. I was yeah. thinking like an hour and done. This, this is craziness. A, it's 8.20. We won't get out of here, actually, between this intermission and the next one. We won't get out of here till about 20 after 11. Dear Lord, I had no idea. And the other thing I want to point out was the, the conductor was not installed. The orchestra was waiting patiently. There was a titter of applause as things were starting to happen. Yeah. And you were shushed. I was shushed by somebody two rows in front. Yes. All all I all I said was, "Do you want to move over to the empty seat?" You're like like, and you're trying to be kind, PJ. You need a little more room. And you were shushed, and nothing was going on. What kind of crowd is this New York opera Uh, group? Wagnerites. This is a sneakers and sweaters and scruffy old coats oh, kind of no, crowd. No, no, you seriously seen me. There was a woman over I there. Saw she her. Saw I saw her. She's the exception. I, she caught true. my eye, Donald. This is but true. but overall, it's a very scruffy. Well, when you come to Wagner, you've got to dress for comfort. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You're going to be sitting a long time. <laughs> I'm learning that the hard well, you way. Know, you know what Birgit Nielsen used to say? They used to ask her, how do you sing Isolde? And she used to say, a comfortable fair pair of shoes. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about the production and leave okay. these poor people in this peace. This is the oldest production uh, currently active in the Met. It's 45 years old. It's a beautiful production. It's amazing it survived this long. I saw this production when it was new. Wow. I've seen it at least seven or eight times. And you're still with years. us. You're I'm so old. I'm My still God. alive. I know, I know. <laughs> but I was young when it was when it was new, I was young. You are new. Now it's old and I'm older. <laughs> Tannhäuser is a fascinating opera. It's sort of the the Macbeth of uh, Wagner. And by, when I say Macbeth, I mean Verdi's Macbeth, which was written in 1847 but extensively revised in 1864. Tannhäuser was written in 1844, I believe, or 45, 1845, and extensively rewritten for uh, the Paris Opera in 1864. But the music in the first act, a lot of it is very Tristan-esque. If you know the music, it's jarring, but it's, it's beautiful. It's probably his most lyrical opera, for sheer beauty of the music. And uh, it's also the most difficult tenor role he ever wrote. Tannhäuser wow. is virtually unsingable. What do you think of the singing? Uh, very so good, very good. Who do we have? Well, we had Andreas Schager, who's a uh, an Austrian uh, held in tenor, dramatic tenor. He's a Tannhäuser. We have uh, Christian Gerecher, uh Georg Zeppenfeld, who's the Landgrave Hermann. He's the uh, local d- duke-like. And uh, then we, uh, in the next act, we'll have Elsa Vandenhever as Elizabeth, the love interest. She's Tannhäuser's love interest. But in the first act, we had the Russian mezzo Ekaterina Gubanova as Venus. And it's, it's also another interesting role because it lies very high. And uh, she's a magnificent singer. But who stole 
the show. Oh, our Lebu, Lebu. Lebu. our, our boy He's Lebu. not ours, but we want to call him yeah. ours. He was a big winner in the Giulio Gari Foundation. He was our second place winner, and uh, it's a fabulous voice, and he's going to have a very big career. What a thrill to see him on the big yes. stage. Yes, well, Lovely guy. It's a smaller role, but uh, he's working his way up. He's a younger singer. He's a young singer. I think he's about, maybe he's about 28 now, 29. Yeah. Lebu. Yeah. It's PJ, it's Donald, it's the intermission at the Metropolitan Opera here at Tannhäuser. Tannhäuser. We love talking to all of you on Opera Box Score. We'll see you again. Bye-bye. I feel like PJ didn't get the full experience. Uh, he missed out on the protesters uh, shouting over uh, Wolfram's spring scene. So <laughs> can we really trust his opinion is what I'm saying. Well, I, he didn't get the whole package, right? Exactly. Yeah. May I have your attention, please? This is the Callous Countdown to 100. Callous Countdown continues. It's called alliteration, everybody. The 100 best moments of Callous's career. Number 97, we throw it over to Weston. Well, uh, you say Weston, but it's really Oliver, because as we have firmly established, I was raised in a Sutherland-only family, so I know nothing about Callus. <laughs> but I am learning along with you, our dear listener. So this is from Oliver. As you heard in his interview with John Relier, the 1958 Paris concert will be providing us with many items on this countdown. Number 97 is a moment from the performance of Costa Diva. One can imagine that the chorus for this concert was comprised of amateur singers and was probably so overwhelmed by the occasion or by the spell that Callus casts in this aria that they botched their first entrance, which you'll be able to hear in this clip. Callas hides her dismay gracefully and gives a clear gesture at the tutti, indicating, never mind all that, here is where you come in, and sings the most rhythmically accurate and articulated gruppetti to get everyone back on track without breaking the spell for the audience. Let's hear that clip. And now for my first appearance on the Callus Countdown. Oh my God, yeah, I'm so the first of many. <laughs> I was so inspired by Ashley's uh, submission last week uh, that I decided to um, dig down into the archives a little bit for another Elvira clip. This is the Elvira, though, that started it all. So picture it, folks. The year is 1949, and Tullio Serafin is in search for a new Elvira for a new production of Il Puritani after the soprano Margarita Carosio has fallen ill. 
Seraphin's wife hears a voice singing through the score of (laughs) Puritani for fun. And that voice is Maria Callas, who is taking a break from her run of Brunhilde's to sight read a bel canto uh, coloratura heroine. Uh, And, you know, Seraphin's wife takes her to, to sing for the maestro, and she bluffs her way through the score, sight-reading for him at times. <laughs> um, and he hires her to learn the part in a week. Um, oh, that part has so many notes to learn yeah. in one week. And so if this is not just any week, this is a week during which she has three more performances of Brunhilde to get I through. <laughs> I can't. And... You know, people at the time were skeptical that this was going to work. They were scornful, even. They talked about, you know, like baritones who were going to be singing Violetta next. Um, (laughs) But the fact that it was such a smash hit success, um, I think, is a really key moment in the formation of not just Maria Callas, but like the legend of Maria Callas, that she Mm. could sing anything. And that not only could she sing anything, she could sing like the two polar opposites of what the voice is asked to do within the same week. And that she was just such a musical sponge. She spent all that time at the conservatoire, you know, learning about the art of music that she could just like absolutely devour these scores. Um, And it also signals, you know, the beginning of her move from exclusively dramatic soprano repertoire towards all like mixing in a decent amount of the dramatic oratoria and bel canto rep as well. And I want to commemorate this, you know, this moment uh, with two clips from her debut studio recording. This was a an, an EP recital from Chetra in 1949, so the same year that this happened. This is, you know, more or less what she would have been singing like at the time. Uh, this is before her big EMI contract, so the sound is definitely not quite as warm as you would get used to from, from future, even future mono recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, but that recital has three tracks. It has the Casta Diva Shena, including Cabaletta. It has Isolde's Liebestod, in Italian, <laughs> and it has the Elvira mad scene. So, no. since wow. we heard a little bit of the Elvira last week, where I would like to start with, well, the first thing you're going to hear is a clip of um, the Liebestrode, which is not Brunhilde, but is pretty close. Um, it's as close as you're going to get <laughs> from her recordings. Uh, and then it's going to segue into, from the same recital disc, the end of the Cabaletta from the Puritani. Thank you. 
The Callus Countdown continues throughout the entire year, heading towards December of 2024. Send us that voice memo or email us your hot takes with your callous moment. It goes to mailbag at operaboxscore.com or even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Pay page on our website, operaboxscore.com. Pay, pay, pay and say. Pay and say. Hey, yeah. two for one. It's great. <laughs> the Two Minute Drill is next. The Two Minute Drill is now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. It's a big week for the concept of Italian opera singing, and I'm not just talking about Maria Callas singing Liebestod in Italian. Uh, the Italian opera singing as a concept has joined UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage alongside pizza making. <laughs> UNESCO celebrated the art form as a physiologically controlled way of singing that enhances the carrying power of the voice in acoustic spaces. It is a means of free expression and intergenerational dialogue with its cultural value recognized at national and international levels. Tough luck for Germany and France, but better luck next year. Rumors of opera consultant Matthew Epstein's death are greatly exaggerated, according to Catherine Maffitano. The soprano contradicted earlier reporting from Slipped Disc and said that Epstein is, quote, alive but unconscious in the hospital undergoing testing. His vitals are stable, but his prognosis is unknown. In the meantime, please let us refrain from further speculation as there are no definitive answers yet. You heard her, folks. English National Opera is officially relocating its home base to Greater Manchester by 2029 in a tough blow to open letter writers across the United Kingdom. (laughs) Said mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, ENO is one of the most exciting cultural institutions in the country. We've worked closely with them to set out a shared vision of a future in our city region where they can continue making groundbreaking opera, foster new collaborations with artists across the north, and bring their award-winning learning and well-being programs to communities here. Finnish National Opera is under fire as more than 10 women have described dozens of instances of harassment taking place at the company, including groping, commenting on body parts, and explicit text messages. General Director Jita Kadambi admitted that there had been several incidents of harassment at the Opera House over the past few years, adding the same few people are responsible. Quote, the most important thing is for people to speak up and step in when it comes to harassment says Kadambi. Opera Moto is the first sponsor of a new online directory of trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse opera and classical voice professionals. In a joint statement, True Voice Award winner Catherine Goforth, Opera Moto Executive Director Danielle Wright, Beyond Travesti podcaster Bryce McClendon, and Opera American Sphinx leader Dorian Block expressed support for the initiative. Quote, historically, they haven't been invited to participate in classical music, Our goal is to change that. It's a major award. Boston Lyric Opera's film Svadba has won the top prize for artistic creation in Opera America's 2023 Digital Excellence in Opera Awards. The opera film, adapted from Serbian composer and librettist Anna Sokolovic's a cappella score for six women, was directed by Shura Barishnikov. San Francisco Opera's In Song also received recognition for education and enrichment materials. In trade news, Hanover State Opera has named Borobusa as its next intendant starting in 2025. And Welsh National Opera has announced Christopher Barron as Interim General Director. He'll take over in January for retiring General Director Aidan Lang. 
Exit stage right, mezzo-soprano and highly sought-after voice teacher Marlena Malas, who's passed away at 87. Malas was a longtime faculty member of the Manhattan School of Music, the Juilliard School, and the Curtis Institute of Music, and taught at numerous opera companies in addition to chairing the voice department of the Chautauqua Institution since 1979. Conductor Robert Hart Baker has died at the age of 69. Baker served as the music director of the St. Louis Philharmonic over 38 years and also worked in opera at the Festival dei Due Mondi and Spolito Festival USA. And on this day, December 11th, 1669, saw the birth of Italian librettist Apostolo Zeno in Venice. The French composer Hector Berlioz was born in 1803 in Côte Saint-André. Polish tenor Hans Rudiger, who sang in the premieres of Zalame and Rosenkavalier, uh, was born in 1862. 1892 saw the birth of Italian tenor Giacomo Lauri Volpi in Rome. And seven years later, 1899, Swiss tenor joined him. Max Maley was born. 1906 saw the birth of Italian soprano Sara Scuderi. And one for Weston, the American composer and teacher Elliot Carter was born on this day in 1908. Couple more for Weston as we move from birthdays over to uh, premieres. As we look at Alban Berg's Lulu, had its first performance oh, yeah. in Vienna in 1935, and Philip Glass and Robert Rand's opera The Juniper Tree, which premiered in 1985. And that's your two minute drill. <laughs> Nella tua fredda stanza Guardi le stelle Che tremano d'amore E di speranza Ma il mio You just heard uh, the Italian tenor Giacomo Lauri Volpi uh, in an audio recording, which is probably from the 1920s or 30s. I wasn't able to confirm exactly when it was taken, um, but that was a clip of the aria, of course, Nessun Dorma from Turandot. Uh, Lauri Volpi was an Italian tenor. He was known for his range and his technical security, and you can definitely hear that come through, um, even in that old recording, like that clarion clear sound of his tenor just like really cuts through a lot of the noise that you can hear in some of those old recordings and like sounds pretty modern even uh and as a fun coincidence he was actually the call-off in the american premiere of torrent at the match oh that's cool crazy couple big stories this week we're gonna hold on to those till the end of the drill we're gonna start at the end with the death of marlena malas and her career matt help us get to know a little bit about marlena marlena malas was kind of like 
the voice teacher. Like, she has has just been such, like, she's been a monument of the vocal industry for decades. Um, she was a, a graduate of Juilliard and Curtis uh, in the 50s and 60s and, and sang for a cup for a time as a mezzo soprano with, you know, New York City Opera, Santa Fe Opera, Boston Opera, Miami, and mm-hmm. other companies as well. Um, but she really found her own as an instructor of young singers. Uh, and she, there are so many tributes to her that have poured out across social media, um, and, and from the many institutions that she was affiliated with, um, which just really speak to how big of a loss this is for the singing community, um, both in terms of her technical skill as a teacher, but also her warmth with her students, um, her encouragement, um, and, and her, Ability to hear past just technique and also make sure that she's focusing on communication and, and that the student is being empowered to, to express something, to have something to say, to communicate both the text and the music on, on not taking anything away from the beauty of tone. Uh, but so that those elements really are all working together. She loved teaching. She continued teaching as she battled cancer four separate times. And she, she talked to, she talks about, you know, working with students as saying, I'm listening to if they have something to say, if they have something to sing about. And I think that really comes through in some of the, in many of the, the tributes to her that, that we we can read just a couple of excerpts from, uh, she she was praised by Craig Rutenberg, the coach from the Met, uh, as the best voice teacher I have known in 60 years, and I've been around all the voice teachers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Lucas Meacham, the baritone, he, he wrote, My cherished voice teacher, Marlena Malice, has passed away. The void left, I cannot define. She cared so much for her students and for tirelessly spreading her knowledge about singing. She did so much for so many. I personally owe her so much. What she gave us in her presence and love was invaluable. She is an irreplaceable figure in my life. Rest peacefully. I, I think that that really sums up a lot of the spirit of these tributes. And, you know, this is, she, she, this is a teaching career that includes many generations of top singers, even, yeah. you know, Susan Graham studied with her. Tatiana Troiano studied with her. Oh, damn. Um, Nancy Gustafson, Judith Haddon, Neil Shikoff. Like, those are all people whose careers are in their twilight if they still have them as singers. Mm-hmm. And they, they were, they studied with, with Marlena. Uh, you know, also singers like Nicole Cabell and Brandon Jovanovich, uh, Jarrett Ott, uh, you know, the, um, Lucas Meacham and, and Brandon Siddell that we just talked about. Like, many, 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 many others. Like, it would be impossible to list all of her students. Those are just some of the names that, that popped up in, in the tributes to her. Um, and, and those are singers who sang, you know, at the very top level of this field. I remember the summer that I was at the Chautauqua Institute is I was teaching the other part of the program, not under Marlena, but I did get to chat with her and was totally starstruck. And she had a way of kind of putting you at ease. I think the the figures show that she probably taught some 2000 students across all experience levels uh, mm. since 79. And that's at just Chautauqua. at Chautauqua. <laughs> just at yeah. Chautauqua. Ashley, I am I right that you uh, studied with her as well? Um, I got to meet her about once a year for a decade, um, and I got to do a master class with her. It's funny, I've, mm. I, I, as you were reading those tributes, I found myself like, oh no, now I have to talk next, and I'm not sure I can, um, because yeah, the uh, 
I got the privilege. I got the privilege of seeing like the pinnacles of her teaching sort of manifesting right in like this super meaty part of this teaching experience she had because a lot of those singers that you listed off, Judith Haddon, Susan Graham, uh, Richard Stilwell's another one. Those those were my that's my pedigree. Those are those are my teachers. Those are people that mm-hmm. I worked with. Yeah. And uh, you know, the Chicago stop on the Chautauqua audition tour was always at my institution where I worked or where I was a graduate student, and then I was an employee. So it was you know it was Marlena week. We always knew when Marlena was coming. It was really exciting, mm-hmm. and she was and you know the the stories you hear about her warmth that they're a hundred percent genuine, genuine. Those sort of rumors are absa, absa, absolutely true. And to- on top of all of the, you know, incredible instruction that she gave, you know, that you hear about the singers that she, she was their teacher and she worked with as sort of like a long running project, but I can, I can also attest to the impact that she makes in sort of an instantaneous one moment, uh, you know, masterclass sort of instruction. And she was, she had the ability to make change and make really beautiful art, even just with that sort of one, you know, one interaction. I remember that I got picked to, I was selected to sing in a masterclass for her on one of these visits. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't quite realize exactly who she was i've mentioned before when i first came into grad school i was a little bit of an idiot when it came to like the culture of opera i just knew i liked it and was kind of good at it and they were gonna let me so i showed up and went to graduate school but um as i started to learn and understand the more nervous i got and i was terrified you know because i'm looking at this roster of people that they've they've chosen to sing and it was a lot of the heavy hitters and then like me and so i felt you know incredible fish out of water i felt really uncomfortable i was scared to death i was going to be singing in french for her which is my worst freaking language i was like this is a recipe (laughs) for disaster we come in that day and of course it's marlena malice she's coming to teach so like everybody in their brother and dog and nephew were coming in because this is something like everybody wanted to watch her work because it was art and it was beauty and it was creation. And so in, you know, I I am now in my forties, I'm still a ball of anxiety. So just go back 20 years with less life experience (laughs) and just imagine like what my brain was going through as I'm waiting to go up and sing for this person. Uh, And it was all coming to a head. And I just remember I, I, almost left my body because I was so afraid. Um, she didn't do anything to make me afraid. I just was. Um, because it's like this, it's this famous person and I'm here and I don't feel like I deserve to be here. And so I get up and I start to sing and she's watching me and I get through it, but not great. Um, I, it was okay. It wasn't great. Um, and so she walks directly up to me and she puts her hands on either side of my shoulders, kind of like on my, on my upper arms. And she goes, are you okay? And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And she looked me dead in the eyes and she just exhaled and goes, it's okay. And my whole body changed. I I will never, I will never forget that moment. Like my whole body changed in that moment. Like Marlena Malice is touching me and she's telling me it's okay. Mm -hmm. All right, let's try this again. And I, there were other like really special moments from that, you know, masterclass that I got to have with her. But that in that moment, that warmth, that like that transfer of energy where she let me know that it was okay. It was okay to make music. It was okay to be a human and be scared. It meant a lot. Yeah. Marlena Malas, rest in peace. 
There's no delicate way, I don't think, to transition to one of the other stories in the drill, which was about the alleged passing of Matthew Epstein, which at the moment is not, in fact, true. There's a little bit for Pete's sake. behind this. <laughs> Norman Lebrecht, the British music critic who runs the Don't website, give him clicks, folks. Slipped disc. <laughs> Please don't. There's debate within this show about the, the value and virtue, but... Uh, the website definitely got it not about wrong. this story. Not about this story. No, <laughs> where, where the website posted that Matthew Epstein had committed suicide. Then Kathy Malfitano pipes up and is like, "No, that's not true. Please be generous and most of all quiet while we let this thing play out." Uh, Epstein, of course, artistic director at Lyric Opera of Chicago from 1999 to 2005. Well, and you know what was weird about this is like the two major singers that you heard the the tail ends of this story from, initially the news was quote unquote breaking that this thing had happened, which we know has not happened, uh, from Neil Rosenschein. So he was the first person. And then here comes Kathy Moe, Kathy Moftano being like, nope, the rumors aren't true. So I just thought in addition to the calamity uh, and the possible tragedy of this news was like it started with Neil Rosenstein and it ended with Kathy. It's Mopitano. a big week for New York conservatory voice teachers. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> David Mamet has a famous play called Glen Gary Glen Ross which was about these <laughs> real estate salesmen. And Where one of the famous lines this? from that play is you never open your mouth till you know what the shot is. And that applies here. It's like do not put it out there. George, that was the most I'm a director piece of wisdom I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so they pay me the I'm big bucks, man. S- I'm honestly still waiting for his classical music sequel, <laughs> Glenn Gary, Glenn Gould. <laughs> oh. How dare you. Be so amazing. Love that. I, this, I, this is so, it's just so frustrating that like a website could generate such absolute lies. And that well, this is, this is one of the it. things that I feel like is so important uh, to think about when you're you're talking about any sort of niche uh, community like like opera, like sometimes <laughs> like I wake sports, up. Dare you say? Go on. <laughs> well, I, I wake up. I wake up in like uh, uh, like in a sweat in the middle of the night sometimes, thinking that oh no, I'm one of the foremost known authorities in the opera world for people to understand what's going on in the opera. That's a concerning thing to think about, especially when you lose like all these legacy, legacy, uh, more reputable media institutions like opera news and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, slipped disc often wrong. The, uh, the, and always spiteful. Always spiteful for no reason. <laughs> yeah. That's their yeah. tagline. Often wrong, always spiteful. It's a great yeah. tagline. Oliver, bless his soul, not on the show this week, cannot stand. He won't even mention the name of the of the website. He's just he just for, he and we're seeing so why in real time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he ain't wrong. Exactly. One of the stories that is in fact true this week is that English National Opera has finally decided to move out of London and is moving to Manchester by 2029. They're waving the white flag at that Coliseum. Ace has won. (laughs) My condolences, George. I know. I this this story has been going on for months and years now, and this is just so it's so disappointing. It's so crushing, and no one is happy. You know, like. Manchester isn't happy because they don't I honestly I don't know how opera is going to really like change the lay of the land there. Leeds isn't happy because Opera North is there. It's less than an hour's drive away, so they're happy. It's a long isn't way happy. for a Brit to drive. Yeah, maybe so. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's on all those B roads. 
London's not happy because they've lost this opera house. I, now, I will say Manchester, until this shift, was the biggest city in Europe without a resident opera company. And yes, that yes. does speak for something. Ah. We're going to have to figure out what the new biggest city without an opera company becomes Ooh. in 2029. Love, love That's true. That. Gentlemen to, to your Wikipedias. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. I just, I just, it's, ah, it's so disappointing. It's so frustrating. Nobody, nobody is happy. And this idea that ENO is going to retain the Coliseum and somehow they're still going to turn a profit on the Coliseum in London, despite them not being there, that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, yeah. It's it, the the whole thing is such a a mess, and I think more indicative of a greater. Um, disdain for culture in a lot of, you know, particularly right-wing governmental institutions around the world. Uh, and this is a problem that is everywhere. Uh, you know, like, like I've said a million times before, a lot of this feels kind of like child's play to an American. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you still get some funding from, <laughs> from right, Lawrence Council right. England, like brag. But, uh, you know, it, it really is... Uh, I mean, everything that's been happening in in England over this has been just the worst to see. Um, and I, you know, it's brought up like the I say every time, worst in everybody. Yeah, every, like I say every time, you, you like if you have the ability to fight, if you're listening from across the pond, fight it because you know we're here on the other side of that in the U.S. and it doesn't get better or by itself. You know? Weston, it it makes me want to eat a pizza. It does, George. There's the there's the transition. I transition. love this little story. Let's let's end this on a fun little go. note. So the UNESCO has, uh, you know, obviously they have their big, you know, uh, uh, UNESCO World Heritage sites and uh, uh, and uh, but they also have these cultural heritage things, which does include the act of making pizza. And now, <laughs> finally, at long last, Italian opera singing specifically, which I think is so funny. I, I uh, now. This is this is actually kind of an interesting one to me because it's it's very vague and I haven't been able to ascertain exactly what they mean by Italian. I I think they're talking about bel canto style mm -hmm. specifically. I, I think I, they're just talking about the fact that opera as a you know as an art yeah. form is considered to yeah. be birthed from Italy. So right. that is the best place to honor because many of the man, many of the quotes talk about you know the cradle of opera with these mm -hmm. you know in these salons. And yep. the Baroque composers that Oliver loves, um, like Monteverdi <laughs> and others, and, yep. and how they kind of created it from scratch. So I think that's why Italians are getting the credit is I for think so having, too. quote unquote, invented it. I do just want to read some of the other Italian practices that <laughs> oh, are already absolutely. on that list, Here which is it's, it's in addition to Sardinian tenor singing. Not just Italian opera singing, oh, right. okay. but Sardinian Specific. tenors specifically. Um, the art of the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> and um, the art of glass beads. And according to The Guardian, they also tried to get Italian espresso on the list last oh, year. And UNESCO on. said that was a bridge too that far. Was... <laughs> <laughs> it's under the list of intangible cultural heritage. Like pizza, like I can touch and smell, but sound like I can't even see. So I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand how this is going to work. I love it. UNESCO. Now there's some big money. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh, it's been an up and down 
hour together. Wow, man. This is why we do it. Good call, bad call. To wrap things up, we're going to start with Weston Williams. My good call is the nose at Chicago Opera Theater last week. I am so sad. I cannot recommend our listeners to go see it next week because it was only two performances, which is, I think, the true tragedy of the uh, of the lack of funding for a post-pandemic opera world. But it was a great performance. Uh, Francesca Zambello uh, did a fantastic do- job directing. Uh, I have to talk a little bit about um, Alexei Bogdanov uh, in the lead role. What a voice! Every time it, I hear it was him, a Titanic performance. Like it was, <laughs> it, it is such a hard role. It is a brutal role, um, and you could hear him crystal clear. There was one point, like in the first act, where he went down into like almost a growl, and I I could not conceive of how it projected that far in that space. And then, of course, friend of the show, Lydia Yankovskaya, her final performance as music director with Chicago Opera Theater, which made me extremely sad. But but man, it was it was on a level of conducting that like the way she has brought this orchestra to the state it is now is truly one of the most exciting journeys I've seen since I first arrived in Chicago. The the orchestra that I first saw when I came to Chicago Opera Theater in 2016 was not capable of the performance I saw last week. And it was it was a phenomenal show. I know some people might be a little bit divided on the opera itself, but those people are wrong. And I I loved every second of it. Matt Cummings. I I, I mean, I heartily agree. that I also went to see the nose. I saw both Weston and the nose on Friday. Um, <laughs> you saw Weston's uh, nose, and Oliver was there too. Um, and Amazing. I just thought the 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 that the production was stupendous. Like I knew, I only knew that the opera was weird, um, and it surely is. But it is weird in such an engaging way, where yeah. you know, like the satire is so outrageous that you just have to go along for the ride and it like what a glorious ride it is um and in particular what i loved about this production is just how many young singers got a chance to to show off here and there yeah um i i thought that in particular um quinn middleman sam grosby mm-hmm. uh at Corinne Costell and Brian Pember like really made the most of the of their moments on stage and gave like really really fun and really impressive vocal performances as well uh, and rush and linguistic too like the uh, Brian Pember in particular had this moment where they have to spit out like the most insane. Uh, Russian patter you've ever heard in your entire <laughs> life, and like every syllable was just like right there, not yeah. a stutter to be heard. Um, and, and incredible props as well to what Lydia Yankovskaya was able to achieve um, with both the singers and the orchestra. Like the percussion writing in that score is so intricate, mm. and it like it was just re- it was really tight. I, like I I was in- re- really really impressed. Ashley Hardgrave. And what I have now decided is going to be a segment uh, for December, Ashley's Holiday Album Wrecks. Uh, they continue. Last week, I mentioned uh, a Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector. Don't knock it. It's a great album. A uh, this time, I would like to move on to the catalog Catalog, excuse me, of James Brown Holiday Albums. Yes. <laughs> uh, so my personal favorite uh 
although feels controversial for some folks, a holiday song is Santa Claus Goes Straight to the Ghetto, which is on one of his earlier holiday albums, A Soulful Christmas. But if you want something that's a nice compilation of like all of the really good hits that he had, what I would recommend is James Brown's Funky Christmas, because it is a (laughs) compilation of three earlier albums, James Brown sings Christmas songs, the soulful Christmas that I mentioned, and the 1970s, Hey America, It's Christmas. Uh, You will recognize the album because it is a wreath with James Brown in the middle with a Santa hat on. But yes, James Brown's Funky Christmas, cannot recommend it enough. Amazing. I also got to go to the theater this past week. The Goodman Theater, which is the big not-for-profit theater here in Chicago, has a new stages program of developmental readings, and I got to see the first pass at a show called Revolutions. This is a uh, musical in development with a book by Zaid Ayers-Dorn. Music and lyrics by Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, for all you 90s folks. It's a story about revolution set on the south side of Chicago. We'll see what happens to it next. You never kind of know how these things are going to play out. But if you ever see this thing come back, definitely worth a look. Revolutions. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the Support the Team page. Your announcers, Norm Waddell, your creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, with guest John Relier, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation while making UNESCO-approved pizza. We're back with an all-new show next week when we take a look back at the best and worst from 2023 in opera land. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more red devils and sky blues. Hey, if you get it, you get it. Regardless, join us.